You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Well, welcome to the Mammal Watching podcast with me, John Hall, who is probably now in Madagascar, hopefully, but currently in New York. And me, Charles Foley in Minneapolis. Well, Charles, how's it going? What have you been reading about this week? Well, you know, John, I have always been a bit of a sucker for field guides, or frankly, for any book that provides mammal distribution maps and talks about wildlife trends. And when I was a kid, I used to pour over a book by a guy called Jeremy Mallinson, which was called The Shadow Extinction, Europe's Threatened Wild Mammals. And the book was published in 1978. And the recurrent theme was that many of the large mammal species in Europe, and certainly all of the large carnivores, were under significant threat, and many were at, at, at risk of extermination. Now, it's true that many species in Europe are still highly threatened, um, and apparently one in nine species in Europe are still threatened with extinction, although most of those are smaller animals such as snails and fish. So it was really good to read a report called the 2022 Wildlife Comeback Report that was published recently by the Zoological Society of London and two birding groups. And this document details a change in population size and distribution of 50 species of mammal and bird in Europe over the past 50 years or so. And frankly, it's, it's a little hard to discern whether the species were chosen specifically because they were increasing. But either way, the list of species and the extent of their growth is really impressive. Basically, pretty much all of the large ungulates have experienced either large population increases or range extensions or both. And this includes the European bison, the elk, which is a moose to Americans, Spanish ibex, alpine ibex, chamois, etc. And many of these animals, their numbers have increased by over a thousand percent since the 1970s. And perhaps even more impressively, the numbers of all five of Europe's large carnivores, that's the brown bears, gray wolves, Iberian and Eurasian lynxes, and wolverines, have showed increases in their abundance over recent decades, which, let's face it, for a continent like Europe, which has such a high density of people, is quite an impressive statistic. And wolf numbers, for instance, have increased by over 1,500% in 50 years to nearly 17,000 animals. Now, you have to put these figures into context and realize that most of that growth has occurred in the last 50 years, and for some species like the Iberian lynx, probably only in the last 15 years or so. And compared to their historical numbers and distribution, the figures are way down because in the past they were hunted and persecuted and affected by habitat loss. And as a result, most species suffered huge declines until around the mid 20th century. But certainly for most large mammal species in Europe, the current trend is very favorable. And for many of the species, these expansions have occurred as a result of better legal protection. Um, and while some of the species such as beavers and bison have spread as a result of reintroductions, most of the increases have actually come from natural expansion and recolonization. So anyway, I found the report quite heartening and it's certainly worth a read. And I think what we'll do is we'll put a link um, onto the Mammal Watching website so people can download the PDF of the document and peruse it themselves. Thanks for that, Charles. That is some rare good news on the conservation front. Um, you know, even the last year uh, or so. Happy birthday, John. 
Oh, thank you. All right, John, <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> when's, when's the actual date? November 4. November 4. And I am hoping for a new lemur or two for my birthday. All right, turning, <laughs> turning 40, hey? Great stuff. <laughs> As I was saying, when I was so rudely interrupted, that is some rare good news for once. Yeah, um, really. Yeah, how cool is that? It shows us. Yeah, things can change. Things can turn around quickly for the animals. That's right. Yeah, and I mean otters are now pretty yeah. widespread across the UK, and it's interesting to look at the spread of something like the golden jackal. I mean, golden jackals are really slow moving across um, Europe. They're now in Austria. They're in um, sort of eastern Italy, etc. And you know, who knows? I imagine not too distant future they'll probably be across much of europe yeah. so that's the thing if you stop if you don't hunt animals then you just let them be then they you know they, they their populations can recover that's right i mean just look what we do you remember all the films when covid um first struck everyone was in lockdown and all those videos went viral of animals reclaiming the streets and it was, <laughs> that was just great i mean it just made me smile so much to see how quickly they can return and come out of the the shadows so yeah yeah no, it is. And as you say, it's, it's uh, just really, you know, nice to hear some good news for a change. Yeah, thank you for that. So Charles and I are very pleased today to be joined live from Asuncion in Paraguay. Um, two people who are familiar, I think, to many of you who follow the website, Karina Karenina and her husband, Andre Gilioff, or AKA the Travelling Naturalists, as they sign their trip reports sometimes. Um, I guess I've been talking to you guys for... I don't know, seven or eight years maybe since you first got in touch with it. You were you were working on Saiga here in Russia and you were interested in using mammal watching to support that that research through organizing basically photo safaris. Um, but since then, you've started submitting trip reports, uh, you've traveled the world, and now you're living and working in Paraguay, uh, which is very exciting. Welcome to the podcast, Karina and Andre. Oh, thank you very much. It's true pleasure to be here and be very proud. To be your guests. Yeah, thank you for inviting. You are very welcome. Very good very to have welcome. you both of you on here. Yeah. So, could you tell us a little? And I gave a very brief introduction. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourselves? Oh, sure. Probably I will talk more today because I'm about talking. Andre yes. is more about doing. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, we are originally we are just. A couple of zoologists. We both have PhDs in biology. Uh, our research, our studies are all devoted to animal behavior. And when we just started our academic careers, we, we had a little, little study we conducted in the lab. But since then, we decided that this is no not not the way we want to study animals and their behavior. We we didn't feel we really getting some new information about animal behavior. We wanted to go in the wild, to go in the field and, and start looking what they are actually doing when the researchers do not do not do some bad or good things with them. So and it was like 15 years ago and since then we started both uh, field zoology and mammal watching treats because it's all all the same for us it's very difficult to separate these two things because we do it 
at the same time in the same trips. We never go just for the research for the particular species we're studying. No, we we always trying to see as much as possible of any kind of wildlife and mammals, especially. And most of our study subjects are mammals, but we also did some research on birds. Yeah. Uh, so, and after we get obsessed with all these field trips and, and watching what animals are doing in, in the wild, uh, we decided that this is the way we want to live our lives. And we had sometimes problems, of, of course, with funding because we wanted to travel in different countries in different continents. And it wasn't very easy to get some money for that. And we also started guiding. So we guided some trips in Africa, in Namibia, in Botswana. We guided Brazil. a little bit Brazil, um, some parts of Russia as well. And so that was our way of coming to this uh, guiding and organizing mammal and wildlife watching trips and tours. Uh, and mm, when we felt a little bit experience in it, we started uh, to think about the Saiga trips, which we we were running for, for several years, because uh, we studied, we made a research in Saiga for 10 years altogether, but the population in Russia is critically small. It's very small. It should be very strictly protected to keep it as it is, at least. Um, and it gets the, the reserve, the Stepnoi nature reserve, it gets very little money, very little support. So we started to think what we can do because, you know, 10 years of research didn't bring the, the reserve any money or any help for Saigas. There are 40 or more scientific papers about, about our research, but it doesn't help actually. So we, decided that we, we should do something besides the, the academic studies, because it's all very good things to know what is in the animal brains, but it doesn't help when this animal just disappear. So we, we conceived this, concise this idea and started to develop it slowly. Um, and uh, what we get is quite interesting because we have made the hides, the wooden hides, uh, stationary hides to, to observe saigas and it allows people to come and see and photograph and enjoy uh, them at a very close range, sometimes just few meters. And normally this species is very, very flighty, very skittish, very vigilant. It's hard to, to see them properly. And there is something to see. They are very prominent um, faces, very prominent charismatic, charismatic um, uh, appearance. So it, it's really needed to, to, it's really important to see them up to close. And we were lucky to be able to organize this and make some photographers and mammal watchers, watchers happy. Yeah, we had, um, affected, yes. we had Mogan's troll on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he yes. talked about his experience with Saiga. I think it's one of his all time favorite experiences. And he shared some video of that 
extraordinary uh, morning you had with you guys. It was yeah. absolutely spectacular. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's nice to hear, and we were happy. You know, it's very, very rare thing when you can make people and animals happy at the same time. So the photographers and mammal watchers are happy and tigers are protected because it was that kind of business, not true business because we got very little profit from it. The idea was to get money for the reserve for, to, to develop it, to keep it running, to keep the territory protected from the poaching. And so the, the most part of the money, the people who, who visited this reserve, they paid for, for the donation, not, not for our salaries and like this. Right. Yes. And <laughs> I think I should probably <laughs> mention here, just in case our guests don't know what a saiga is, it oh, is yeah. an, an antelope, a medium-sized antelope with a really bulbous nose, isn't it? It's a really interesting looking antelope. It's one of the, probably the most interesting looking antelopes in my opinion. Yes. And this nose can have different shapes depending on the mood or behavior. They can make incredible sounds with this nose. The males, especially, it's bulbing, growling sounds very low. And so it's something what is interesting about this species. And even small cows, they're so they can't walk very well, but their voices are very low. They mm. uh, always say something like mama, mama. <laughs> <laughs> it's much lower than I, I'm showing. Yeah. So, and that's, that's funny. <laughs> and how many people visited uh, typically in, you know, uh, in, in a year, for instance? In a year, it was, I guess, um, it's not so many reports in, in mammal watching, on mammal watching website, because most of them were from Russia or the neighboring countries like Kazakhstan or There were uh, Belarus, some from Germany. From Germany, yes. But they were not so interested only in mammals. They were like Looking more at birders, him. yes, but also wanted to see saigas. Uh, they are not so in mammals. Every year it was like not more than 10 groups, I guess. Uh, sometimes the group is just two people, sometimes the group is much bigger, but uh, it's, it wasn't really the, the, a lot of people there. And they, the, uh, the uh, administration of the reserve, they never wanted many people to come because Every time we pass to this height, we disturb some tigers grazing nearby or something like this. So it was really small scale thing, but it it helped a lot because in, in this region the 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 salaries and all, all things are not are very low. So even this small impact from the like ten groups coming every year, it it helped uh, significantly. Yes. It had some impact because it's a very small place. The, the team is like not more than 10 people. It's more or less sometimes it's like, uh, yes, rangers are just um, changing from month to month, but it's a really small team altogether. The director, the accountants, the, the rangers, and that's it mostly. So it's not, not a big reserve. Mm. Uh, but 
it's cru crucially important for the Saiga population. It's the center of the habitat now in Russia. Right. And so how many animals um, are in that area? And um, how does that compare to some of the other populations, for instance, in Mongolia, etc.? Um, in this uh, that reserve, uh, Stepnoi, uh, has its neighboring reserve in a neighboring state, which is Kalmykia, where the uh, the place uh, which John visited, Chorne uh, Zemli Reserve, and uh, these two reserves are the only place where you can find Saiga. Uh, well, yes, uh, in Russia and Europe, so it's the only place for European population, and it has uh, now about six to eight thousands of them. When we started, it was about 2,000 or less. Hmm. Yes. Okay. And that uh, increase, do you attribute that to your efforts of um, bringing people in to, um, to see the side game provide more money? Or what, what, do you, what was the cause of that rise? Uh, it's a mixture of reasons, uh, not one of reasons. Uh, first reason, it's... Uh, Slight but general uh, increase in uh, people income in the region. It was really slight, but it was. Uh, so now it's back decreasing, Down. fortunately. Uh, that's the first reason. The and, second, and the people uh, didn't um, rely on the meat of Saiga so yes. much, so they they were able to find other sources and it, it wasn't that important for them because it's uh, senseless to fight against poaching when people just need to eat something and they will go anyway the, to, to just to feed their families. Mm -hmm. Or to sell it. Or to, to sell the horns yes. or whatever because they have no other options for, for their income. Uh, other reasons are mm, more, you know, uh, interest in Saiga. At first, uh, most of people, uh, even in Russia, even in this region, said, oh, there are still any Saigas? I thought they're only in Mongolia or somewhere else. Uh, and uh, we, year to year, we insisted there, there are Saigas, they have to be protected, they should be protected now. Uh, and we used our photos, which made in large uh, quantities and videos to show uh, that it's not a smaller silhouette on the horizon, but it's a calf which is milking now with her, his mother or some um, fight beautiful against the sunset. So even such uh, information which is going to ministries, to the capital, to the um, local government, to the uh, local uh, journalist, uh, that's all together make more uh, you know, uh, attention, attention to, to, to the to, reserve. To the reserve and to the species that it's it's it still exists. It's beautiful, and we should protect it. And so, shouldn't shouldn't be closed. Yeah. And very much in this regard, uh, it was the help of the Saiga Conservation Alliance 
they they made a great job supporting the reserve and providing information worldwide that that tigers are here they're so so cute so let's let's protect them and so on so they they really really helped and we helped them it was some kind of cooperation all the time so um obviously with everything that's been happening in ukraine um you're you're no longer um there in that area i'm assuming you're no longer working on the project but do, do you know what's what the situation is with the reserve and with the population of Saiga, do you, do you know? Yes, of course, we we always in contact with them. The So far, it's not some dramatical change, but it's starting already because there is less money, less uh, funds are used for the wildlife protection in the country. And of course, and the, the biggest problem, the first problem which appeared is the international funding. So the international NGOs which had offices in Russia and which made projects together with Russian reserves and national parks and whatever, uh, they, they just stopped. It's not, it's very often not their choice of these organizations. It's just impossible uh, bureaucratically, officially to, to send money to Russia, to send money to people who protect animals in Russia. It's not possible anymore. So many very, very important conservation projects, they are on, on hold. They, they are not going on anymore. And uh, it's even not allowed to get money from abroad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any money. Yeah, so that's, that's even if somebody want to want to even from physical person, I mean. Yes. From no. man. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is the, the problem me. because yes, money is needed for, for any project. And without right. this, it's difficult. And but we we think the, the worst thing will be much later than the, the economical situation will be worsen and worsen and uh, local people will again have to use tigers for to get some income because they still it's still possible to sell the horns um, which are used in the some traditional medicine in the east mm -hmm. not, not inside the russia in asia yes yeah chinese traditional medicine and yeah. this is yes this is the way usually people use them uh, they hunt just for horns and maybe for meat also now for meat mm -hmm. yes and so so far it's still it's still saigas there there's no not the problems are but they're not critical so not so fast but the the future looks not very bright for them yeah that's too bad yeah, yeah. very sad i remember you um you made a post actually not long after the invasion of Ukraine, just talking about the the impacts on conservation straight away of what was happening, and it was extremely sad and something I hadn't even thought about. You know, everyone's caught up in what's happening with people, but of course, yes. animals yeah. are, are hurt too. Yeah. Um, so, following that, you you you've moved to Paraguay. Can you yes. tell us about your plans and how that's going? Oh, that's going, you know, exciting as every new life 
if, especially if you started in your mid thirties, it's exciting <laughs> to say softly. Uh, there are many, we had many, many problems. We had many um, nerves, uh, the, the cells in our brains, I think dead forever or something like this, because there are many things we, we didn't know how to do, how to organize, where to go, what, what to say. Our Spanish is still not very good, but we are trying to improve it. Yeah. Uh, so at first, you know, we arrived, we, we got sick with COVID, we, we got problems with some documents to get a permanent residency and so on. And we were quite depressed on, wow, Probably the plan was too optimistic to come here and start everything, um, working with mammal watching trips and something like this. But when we just went in, in the field, started to, to observe animals, to look for animals, and we forgot about all the problems. And um, now we have spent like three months in the field, mostly in the charcoal. We had, you know, this too started very slowly. First, I think we, we visited not the best places and used not the best techniques to, to look for, for mammals, but slowly, slowly, we are starting to realize what to do. And as a result, in this month, we had, I think, our best mammal sightings we had during the last 15 years traveling like Africa, Australia, Asia, Russia, South America, not the Paraguay. Yeah. Um, so for some reasons, we had really close, up to close sightings. I think about 10 species of mammals approached us very closely in Paraguay, which is known for actually good number of species, but low quality of these sightings, because usually it's like road um, crossing, uh, animal crossing the road in front of your car, or just appear, disappearing in the bush loudly, even if you go by foot. So, but here we applied, I think, all what we um, learned. learned from our field work. So we do not drive too much. We do not uh, chase animals, chase mammals too much. We often wait for them at water holes or some other popular places by them. We use the camera traps to understand what time of the day this animal in this area is visiting this place. So we doing actually research, but the goal is not the fundamental knowledge about animals, but the right. knowledge about uh, how to see them right here. And we have found some incredible areas. We had, I don't know, some magic days uh, in, in one place in central Chaka with, um, we spent altogether like seven hours by the waterhole and only one specific waterhole. And we had, during the daytime, we had um, gray brocket deer, Tyra, a group of coatis. Um, a group of uh, colored peccaries. A group of colored peccaries. Um, 
Dark bear. Dark bear during the daytime. And after dark, we have Geoffrey's cat coming to drink, the giant anteater coming to drink, uh, and ocelot coming to drink. And we saw it all by oh uh, wow. our eyes. Uh, it wasn't the camera trap study. It wasn't the, the, just an image. It was um, not so far from us. And yes, yes. and also wow. we, we now know the really good place for tyras. Many mammal watchers are interested in them. And we think it's, it's a really good point to, to try to, to show people tyras here because it's not, Paraguay is not a place you choose to, to see Tyra, but uh, we had like five sightings a day in one one area, but no sightings at all in other areas. So it's mm -hmm. very, very Petchy. complicated here, the patchy habitat. Uh, some places are super good, some are just deserted, nothing except some very common species. So it's it's difficult here in Paraguay with mammal watching, but it's amazing at the same time. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's such an incredible. The Chaco is what is it? The Spanish call it the the green hell, right? El Infierno oh, yeah. at the end. Yeah. It's this this way. It's just an enormous empty space and um, yeah. so well, much potential. Story, yeah, the same yeah. David Attenborough called it one of the last great wilderness areas in the world. Right. When I was there, uh, twenty uh, ten years ago, or so. We um we were catching things, uh, and it was great for small mammals with, you know, mouse opossums and um just different rodents. Are you have you started doing that as well? Um, actually, our idea is uh, not to put much attention on on catching things because some of these species, not all of them, of course are now much easier to find with thermal imagery. Of course, yeah. We have yeah. several species of rodents. We have uh, two mouse opossums. We had, um, what else we had small? Uh, we, uh, we had, by the waterhole, we have several species of bats, mm -hmm. quite, quite clearly visible because they were drinking. So you can Even take a photo, photo yes. yes. So it's, um, we are that kind of, of researchers who are trying to avoid catching things. We, yeah. we have nothing against it, but we always are thinking about what if we will hurt it or it will die in the trap or something like this, but we did it, we can do it. We have nothing against it, but we are trying to focus on, on how to show people animals behaving in their own way, mm -hmm. what, what they do naturally, not just just see it as a species, as a, as a um, thick in the list, but to, to see something about them, to understand how they, they behave, if yeah. it's possible, yeah. Okay, interesting. I have to admit, I love that, I love the fact that you are applying your your research skills, your sort of technical research skills to mammal watching, yeah, <laughs> using, right. using all those skills to actually sort of figure out, okay, how do you actually see these animals and how can you actually show them uh, to people? Um, but one question I have is just, why did you choose Paraguay? What was it about Paraguay which caught your attention? Oh, there are many reasons. Yes, uh, not one. Not one. First of all, we were we when we think about any country, 
any country for any reasons. First, what we do, we check the mammalwatching.com and what it has about this country, what people see there, um, how, they, how they see mammals there and what experience they have because, you know, mammal watching three reports are not just, often not just the list of species seen, but very often it also gives you some impression about the country, about, from, the people. about the people, about the quality of the beer or something like right. this, Important. from yeah. people who are uh, more or less close to us in, in the mentally, in, in, in the ways of thinking. Of thinking. So it's, it's really, <laughs> we really used to, to, to uh, use this information from mammalwatching.com to to assess the assess the country if you want to go there if it's good or not. Uh, and with Paraguay, we learn two two things. We read reports. We ask people directly, like Cheryl Antonucci and some Jason Wulger and some other people who visited the country for mammal watching, and we talk to them, and we learn two things that it's. It has an impressive species list, list of species which are possible to see. And there is some problem with the quality of the encounters of the sighting. And we thought that, well, probably we can do something about it. Maybe we can fill some niche, uh, do something there what is not done by, by others. Uh, this was the key point that it, first of all, it's interesting uh, in terms of mammals, and it's probably something we can do there to improve the, the mammal watching opportunities. A bit similar with saigas, because uh, in some places you can see saiga in one kilometers away, one, two kilometer away, but not so close, not to make good photos to observe them. And uh, the, our, uh, our idea was to make such a place for photography, for videography, for observation of them. Uh, and uh, same here, to make something that you can, where, where you can get people to uh, make photos of local wildlife, to uh, observe them and natural habitat. So it's a bit similar, but on a broad scale, on a, all possible mammals or and birds also uh, which you can find there and we we are focusing here much like in, with tigers again sorry um they are deep in our hearts yes. and souls uh, much like with tigers we are trying to work with places which will benefit from tourists from mammal watchers coming there uh, so yes, there are very good places at some national parks or some some publicly uh, open areas, but we are focusing on the privately owned lands where the owners still protect some habitat from from cutting the trees, making the the cattle farms and whatever they they have this idea in their mind, but they really need also some support from, from the benefits from income. And we also cooperate with the conservation organizations here. One of these is the 
Guira, Paraguay. They have some uh, privately owned lands, uh, which are private reserves, but very little known. Nobody goes there, uh, but they are incredible. There are some really wilderness areas with good uh, chances to see some interesting species. Uh, and working with them and bringing people there, we can really support this uh, for long term. So if, if people see that it can bring some income also, not only farming and or cutting the trees and selling them, um, at least some small parts of the Chaco may, may be preserved for future generations and so on, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds too, too <laughs> romantic. Too romantic, but yes, that's that's the idea to to choose the places um, which are not only good for mammal watching, but which also are protecting them, protecting right. animals, protecting mammals. Yeah, that's hugely important. That's great. Very. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think you're really onto something with with the niche that you're investigating. It's Partly the you know the experience, not just the mammal watching, but generating those kind of quality experiences. But and there are because in Paraguay there, are, I can think of a, several species that I think people would love to see up close and get really good pictures that are just really difficult um, yeah. to to encounter regularly. Tyra is one that just seems to me almost random where you see that um, things like Jaguarundi, Jeffrey's cat, which you already mentioned, um, Chaco peccary. These are all really cool species that people would love to photograph. Um, there's a couple more I want to add to that list for selfish reasons. Can you please find out how to see greater grizzons and fairy armadillos, please? Because then I'll be on the next plane. <laughs> That's oh, a challenge. Yeah. Fairy armadillos is a real challenge, I know. But, um, oh, yes, yeah. we are working on it, uh, specifically from our first day in the field, we are talking to people, showing them the, the image of the fairy armadillo and asking if they have ever encountered this, some farmers, some, some people who actually have much greater chances to see it than we are and the, any mammal watching, uh, mammal watcher has. Um, and so far, not so much replies were positive, uh, but there is some area in, in the central Chaco, the Neuland colony, there is a slight chance that uh, the, the local farmer there, the, they, they see them from time to time, but we should check, we will install the, the camera traps there, we mm -hmm. will keep asking the neighbors and we will need some more time for this. Doing this investigation, not sure it will bring any reliability in the sightings of Feria Armadillo. Yes, but we know very good places for Geoffrey's cat, for Tyras, for... for colored peccary. Colored peccaries is not, not that, but you know, we saw colored peccaries so many times traveling South America, but it's always these flighty things mm -hmm. running away. Or something inside the, the inside bush. Inside the bush. And we or really running straight at you. Them. Yeah. Nice. Sometimes running straight at you as well, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the white-lipped peccary, we, we can can we have some places to to That's good chances. Good chances of, the of them. Yes. Chaco peccary are 
nasty guys, uh, difficult, uh, still very difficult. And in some places where it wasn't that difficult to see them, now it's not not so good. Yes. So the poaching, poaching hunting, it's, it's highest than ever. Mm. Yeah. Wow. But well, <laughs> we'll try to do yeah. something with that. Yeah, please do. <laughs> so um, I'm assuming that for the next few years, at least, you are going to focus your efforts on trying to understand Paraguay as, as best you can and to, to get your business um, up and running over there. But do you have any other sort of mammal watching trips which you uh, really want to take, which you're just putting on ice for, for the time being? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> we have a lot of a lot of wishes. Um, we are really interested in in-depth trip to Australia because we, we've been there twice. Uh, we, both times we did mostly our research. Once it was outback in the New South Wales and once it was Tasmania. Both trips were amazing, but we really want more. Some, uh, for some reason, marsupials in general and macropods in particular uh, are beloved. Some of the, yes. the, the most uh, interesting animals for us and we will be really happy to go somewhere deep in, in Australian continent to look for some rare macropods like Monjong or whatever. And also for Andre, it's a long big Echidna. Yes, yes, that's not Australia. It's yeah, new, nearby, new. yes. <laughs> but yeah. one big echidna. Uh, we had an amazing experience with the captive one uh, in the Moscow Zoo. They had uh, not an exhibition, it was on, uh, inside uh, the scientific department. So it's, it was closed to visitors, but open to researchers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had amazing experience uh, interacting. interacting, entertaining with. Uh, a male uh, a Bruins long beak echidna, uh, which is now unfortunately dead. Uh, he was quite old, but uh, well, it was anyway sad. Mm. Yes, it was uh, a great loss for many people yes. because he was so special. He so was special walking animal. freely in this department. Because it, it's like office, you know. With the cabinets, the computers, people working, walking there. <laughs> the and office walking inside and uh, stepping on your foot, looking for worms, under, under under trying to put your foot away. Maybe there are worms. They should be somewhere. <laughs> Why not here? <laughs> he was really funny and clever, and he uh, loved uh, two or three people who were keepers. And uh -huh. he always understand when they are walking uh, by uh, by the sound, sound of, of how the, they walk. The vibration. Yeah, they recognize them very easily. Easily so. and walking to them. And, and it was amazing because all what we studied in the university about the monotremates, it's that they're stupid, so they're primitive, they're very yeah. ancient, they are not particularly smart, they just eat and sleep or and mate and so on but um actually it's not not true because they have i think very complex cognitive abilities in in recognizing things in uh, task solving 
and whatever. And um, it would be so good to see one in the in the wild. Yeah. <laughs> yes. How wonderful! Any species is okay, but all of them are difficult. Yeah, yeah. There's, I think, Lisa Daybeck has them at her uh, field site. Um, she came uh, yes. on the program. Yes, talked about uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, but I think it's one of those animals that very, very few people have seen. Um, but going back to the, the yeah the thing of um, many animals are regarded as being a primitive or not having um, sort of much cognitive abilities. But um, almost invariably, if people have kept an animal as a pet, you discover all sorts of things about these and realize they, they can often be incredibly social animals. And we've had a, a very small squirrel, um, a Paracera squirrel in, in Africa as a pet. And she was an amazing pet. And other people who've had fruit bats and they're just such wonderful animals and they become part of the family and they sort of join you for meals, etc. So uh, there's an awful lot, I think, that we can learn about animals, particularly if uh, we're in close, close proximity to them as they have them as pets. No, not that I'm true. not I'm advocating sort of going out and it's like you know, taking a whole bunch of pets, but uh, as I said, yeah. no, but if someone has a long beat to kidna going spare, I would like it for my office too. Just say, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. very, very special echidna because when then they got it, it was uh, still juvenile and yes. it was really sick, and since then it became a pet because they hand raised and and helped him to survive very much and of course it was not not anymore just an, an animal one of the animals in the zoo but just a part of the team yes <laughs> and that's why they they always said no for any ideas about making an exhibition for him because it would mean that it will be isolated there even even a good exhibition and then a good enclosure is is um it's isolation for such a species when you can't find a mate or something. And um, sometimes people, people, even this artificial situation with people as a company is much better than, than nothing, nothing, than yes. isolation, social isolation. And nobody understood them because, well, what kind of social isolation can be in, in Echidna, in long yeah. Echidna? Yeah. And no, group family groups of them into the in the wild you no know, studies about the hierarchy about the social interaction but it was obvious that it 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 needed it it needed communication needed interactions mm -hmm. oh. and uh, once uh, he was he was uh, his name was small because when it, he, it, he arrived. Arrived. It was really small. And, and it was the, the English word "small" that used for his nickname. Yes. Uh, and uh, once he was sick because uh, for some reason he found a piece of plastic pocket. Plastic bag. Plastic bag. Bolsa. Bolsa. Yes. Yes. And. Uh, a small piece, but he somehow swallowed it. Swallowed it, and he was sick for uh, several days. And uh, uh, after the operation of putting it out, and uh, he was distressed of not of being isolated. And uh, the keepers there uh, sitting twenty four hours with him, and he was nervous until they uh, put his nose in the hand. Mm -hmm. Grip, grip mm -hmm. the, the nose, and yeah. he was 
that calm down, calm down. Yes, because everything is it's so natural for them to put their nose somewhere deep inside so that's yes. some comfortable position and uh, they were sitting and holding his nose all this time to keep him keep uh, him relaxed calm. yes wow oh wow 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 that's a absolutely fascinating story we never expected to tell about this on this yeah. podcast, but we are happy to tell about it. Yeah. But echidna therapists around the world are listening to this, oh, and they yes. now know how to treat a, a worried echidna, which is um, going to be a huge medical advantage for many people. Yeah, so, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, do you guys have any other stories or anything else that you'd like to communicate with, uh, with the listeners? If we can still say something, we want to say huge thanks to Rob and Romy Jensen because Hansen. Yes, we hope so. It's correct uh, because uh, these guys they were traveling Paraguay like several weeks before us, before we arrived in Paraguay, and we they just started to help us with the information, with contacts, with phone numbers of people who can help us with all kinds of information, where to get fuel in the remote Chaco regions, where to get drinking water and everything like this. And these guys are amazing. The way they are traveling for, I think, years through, through the South America, it's outstanding. And they, they really helped us because when we started, we we were a bit disoriented and this guy said, oh, that's no problem. You can go there and there. This guy is very friendly, ask him and he will show you the place. And that was really huge support. And we are thankful for them for the very good beginning for our very good beginning in the country, which we are already starting to love and we want to keep exploring it. Good to know. I think it was it was Robin Remy who suggested that you would be good guests, I think. Is that right, Charles? That's right, yes, it yeah. was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that sounds like a truth. Yes. <laughs> well, now that you'll be world famous for appearing on the podcast, uh, you can uh, thank them. <laughs> Andre and Karina, Karina and Andre, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I love hearing your stories and good luck with the future in Paraguay. It sounds extremely exciting, and I'm pretty sure I see a return to that country on the horizon now after hearing what you what you guys are up to. Brilliant. Yeah, and not just that, I think that, uh, you know, I'm sure people listening to this podcast will also uh, probably add it to their list of countries that they want to go and visit, particularly now that they know that there are people over there who are really uh, looking out and trying to find where the animals are and should make excellent guides. So thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. It was very nice to talk to you and share what we what we find, what we are. Thank you so much, guys. Thank <laughs> you. have been listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast.